Well, we come to a watershed moment in the life of the early Christian church. I'm doing a series on the book of Acts, and as I've not uh, spoken for two weeks here, then maybe I need to do a little bit of reminding where we are in the book. We're at Acts chapter 15, so open a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 15. you're using the Bibles in the pews, we're talking about page 1718. Many of us have a very idealistic picture of the early Christian church. When you get to chapter 2 in the book, you're seeing this mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. But what most people forget is that this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is on the Jewish side of the church, which is the only church at that point in time. We don't have the Gentile side, the non-Jewish side of the church. The early church, when it began, was pretty much all Jewish. Well, what about the rest of the world? What about these non-Jews, these Gentiles? Where do they fit in? Well, if you'll remember, we have the Ethiopian eunuch who was saved and baptized. We have Cornelius in chapter 10 of the book of Acts and his family. But there is a Jewish connection there, even though they were not truly Jews. They're connected to Judaism. But when the gospel started to move to the totally non-Jewish world, then conflict and troubles came into the early church. So we're going to talk around that. We may not get through all of chapter 15 today. That's okay. I don't mind splitting this into two parts. There's plenty of good material there uh, for a number of sermons. Just before we, uh, I preach, let's, let's bow our heads. Gracious God, uh, we desperately need your Holy Spirit, Lord, to appreciate the significance of your word, what you're really trying to communicate to this church family and to our guests here today. So I pray, Lord, that your Spirit will manifest himself to each person. Open our minds, open our hearts, May we embrace the truth and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 15, we see it starts, at least in the NIV, with certain people. Certain people. It's not always really, really clear who these people are. But for the sake of this message this morning, let's say that they're Jewish Christians. Perhaps the same people as we find in verse 5. Jewish Christians who had a Pharisaical background. The Apostle Paul would fit into that category very, very well. But there was one huge difference between Paul the Christian Pharisee, and these Christian Pharisees. 
One of them, Paul, understood the gospel. And he preached the gospel. And these other Christians did not have a clear understanding of the gospel. Now, I hesitate to say because they didn't have a clear understanding of the gospel that they're not Christians. Because I meet a lot of Seventh-day Adventists who do not have a clear understanding of the gospel, and I would never say that they're not Christians. So we have to be kind of cautious uh, on the labels that we put on people. But we'll see right at the beginning of this chapter that this issue of what is the good news of Jesus Christ is really the big, the big deal. So it says, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Now, those of you that have been listening to these sermons each week know that we've talked about two Antiochs, one in Syria and one outside of Syria. Well, this is the Antioch in Syria. This is the missionary Antioch, the home base, if you like, of the first missionary expansion of Paul and Barnabas. So the church, through the Holy Spirit, separated these men and sent them out into uh, primarily a, a non-Jewish world. Yes, there were Jewish synagogues in some of these places that they went to, but they're primarily going to make contact with non-Jews. And God is going to do amazing things through these men. I hope God is doing amazing things through your ministry too, whatever form that may take. We're not to study about these individuals like Paul and Barnabas and, and just uh, be in awe of them, even though I am in awe of them in many respects, but we want to see what God can do in your life and in my life in advancing His cause too. So these certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, pretty much new believers, babes in Christ, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be what? Now let me hear you say it. You cannot be saved. So it's important to understand what the issues are. Because sometimes I might say, well, the issue is um, they wouldn't eat together. Do you remember Peter in Galatia eating one day, then not eating with the, the non-Jews the next day? But really, we're talking about pretty much the same thing. How do you really become a first-class member of God's church? Is it by faith alone, or is it by faith plus something? In this case, at least two things. Circumcision is going to be mentioned or has been mentioned, and keeping the law of Moses. But really, to me, it doesn't matter what you add. You could add uh, the Sabbath. You could add, uh, have read all the books of Ellen White. You could add being a vegan. You could add many things, only, only singing hymns in church. I mean, it's incredible what we want to add before somebody is truly embraced and accepted by, by God's people. Now, to be fair, 
We do have a whole lot of Scripture that talks about the importance of circumcision, the importance of keeping the law of Moses, the importance of the ceremonial law, which seems to me to be primarily the issue. And these devout Jewish Christians, if you want to use labels, you can call them the ultra-conservatives in the church. We don't question their sincerity. At least I don't. I assume that they're sincere. But you can be sincerely wrong. We have that in the Seventh-day Adventist church in, amongst our membership, and we have it in the early Christian church here. Somebody said to me, because I didn't preach exactly the same as what I'm preaching today in Palisadro, but it, it was related. I was in the book of Acts last week, and somebody said to me later after the sermon, they said, how long do you think it took for these Jewish Christians really to let go of this ceremonial law? And I said, well, probably not for many of them, not until A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed. Then we know there was an end to the sacrificial system. And then a more of an emphasis on the synagogue, more of an emphasis on, on reading the Word. of I mean, they had to find some kind of substitute uh, for not making these animal sacrifices. But the point is that in Scripture, the wall of separation has been taken down. Jesus referred to that. The, temp the temple curtain was torn in two. If you turn to uh, keep your finger in Acts and go to Ephesians, let's uh, again use the Pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 2. And nobody understood this better than the Apostle Paul. That's why he was the, the lightning rod for the wrath of many of these Jewish Christians. And not just, you know, we have this nebulous picture of who these Jewish Christians, some of them were the leadership of the church that didn't like Paul. So you might hear me say, well, Peter and Paul and James were all agreed on the gospel. Yeah, well, they were, theoretically. But in practice... Paul often was the one that was the cause in the trouble. But the, the reality is he's the, he's the one better than anyone who understood the gospel because he had been taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. But you can have people within the church who are a light years ahead of everybody else, and they're usually the ones that get persecuted. Anyway... In verse 14, it says, For he, speaking of Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God, through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and this is primarily talking to Gentiles now, and peace to those 
who were near, that would be the Jews, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So there you had this division, pretty much a man-made division between the Jews and the non-Jews. And the reality is when Christ died on the cross, those two uh, bodies of people, when they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, become one, whether they realize it or not. So a Jew would be thinking, there's no way these Gentiles have equal rights as we have. And the Gentile would be thinking, if, if they're around this strong Jewish influence, well, why do these Jews all mean, always make me feel inferior? What do I have to do? And you have to just try a little bit harder, become a little bit more Jewish, get a little bit more serious, and we'll test your sincerity by cutting off your foreskin or insisting on the law of Moses, which probably was very involved. When we look at some of these very sincere Jewish groups, we find that there's all sorts of emphasis on, on washings and bathings and, and keeping days and certain foods and, and very, very involved. And it seems to me what comes out of the Jerusalem council is, hey, let's keep it pretty simple and not add any more burdens for these Gentile people. So the, so the issue is, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Before we go any further in the book of Acts, I want to kind of remind you where we've come to up to this point. We, on the, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, this Jewish Pentecost, we have God giving His stamp of approval upon Jewish people who believe and trust in Jesus. How do we know what evidence is there that God has, has brought into, this, into reality a new entity, a new church family? He pours His Spirit on them. That's the evidence right there. Then we see with Cornelius, a Gentile Pentecost in Acts chapter 10, when Peter has his vision, Cornelius has his vision, God brings them together and he pours out his Holy Spirit on Cornelius and his family. So that's what I'm calling the, the Gentile Pentecost. And Peter is amazed and the Jews that are with him are amazed that, that God would do this to people that are just simply trusting in Jesus. And it would seem in, the, in this strong Jewish church, it would seem that that was kind of okay. It was okay to have an Ethiopian uh, who's interested in Judaism, and it, it's kind of okay to absorb somebody like Cornelius and, and his family. But when someone like Paul and Barnabas go out and preach the good news of Jesus Christ, and Gentiles are flocking in, and it's obviously more of them than it is of us, then it becomes pretty threatening. And all of these statements of lowering the standards would have come from these what we call Judaizers. God has told us how to get right with Him, 
He's told us the importance of circumcision. He's told us the importance of the ceremonial law. They had lots of Scripture to back it up. And Paul and Barnabas are just making it too easy. Get these Gentiles coming in saying that they have faith in Jesus Christ. They're going to be fornicating all over the neighborhood. All the standards are going to be coming down. So you had this real issue. And, and to show you how, how serious this is, we're talking about these Judaizers traveling all the way from Jerusalem to Antioch in Syria, which is quite a distance, just to undermine the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. So when you see Jewish people getting mad at Paul, don't think of those Jews as non-Christians, which of course some of them probably were, but also include Jewish Christians who, who, who would, would hang him from the nearest lamppost if they could. Well, Christians don't do that, do they? Christians don't turn on one another, do they? Well, if you carry on reading in the book of Galatians, where Paul and, and Peter had their, their confrontation, Paul says to the church there, if you keep on treating one another this way and devouring one another, it's like cannibalism. It's like eating one another. We can destroy one another. Us devout Christians who are so concerned about maintaining the standards and holiness, we can devour one another with our tongue. And that's not acceptable behavior for a Christian. Or sticking labels on one another. Very easy to do, but it does a lot of damage. Uh, one of my friends was, was um, recently accused of molesting a child, whether that accusation is true or false, and we believe it was false, it's something he's going to have to live with for the rest of his life, right? So it's very, very easy to stick this conservative label, this liberal label on people. No one is more concerned with the standards than God, right? He's the holy one, He's the one that really knows what holy living is all about. And he places his Holy Spirit in us to effect that holiness. It's God's will that all of us live a holy life. And his way of effecting that is not to give us rules and regulations, but to lead us to Christ, who then places his Holy Spirit in us so that we can be everything that God wants us to be. Well, these Judaizers, that wasn't good enough. Wasn't good enough. We have to ha have Jesus, and we have to have faith plus something else. And it's the plus something else that is the problem. In Catholicism, if I understand it correctly, it is trusting in Jesus plus baptism. And I've heard Seventh-day Adventist pastors talk that way too. Whether they believe it or not, I don't know. Or whether they're trying to lay guilt trips on people so they can get more baptisms, I don't know. Only God can read the heart. But I have heard these things explained even in the Seventh-day Adventist church 
not in our statement of beliefs. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the actual practice, what goes on in our lives and in the lives of congregations. I have heard it expressed in, in lots of ways which undermine what God is trying to do. If God says it is through faith alone that is the ticket into His kingdom, then we have to, to believe that God is able to, to be in control of that individual. We don't have to add, well, you must do this and you must do that. And when we start talking about only, only uh, certain people, if they eat certain things, go to heaven, then that's exactly what we're doing. We're undermining the gospel. We're making an addition there. No matter how sincere we are, no matter which authorities we quote, the gospel is saying, no, never, ever do that. You're undermining the work and the plan and the methods of God. Well, it says in verse, verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with these Judaizers. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad, and when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So Luke is making it very clear <coughs> that the leadership in Jerusalem is not antagonistic to Paul and Barnabas. They welcome them, but that doesn't mean to say there's not tensions. This is not an easy, an easy issue to resolve. This, this, what we're studying today, took decades. You know, even, even, have you ever heard of a group called the Ebionites? Have you ever heard of a group called the Ebionites? We have, we have these sincere Christian, Jewish Christians who don't feel that faith alone is enough, and we have other groups through the centuries who always had a strong emphasis on keeping the law of Moses in some way, shape, or form. Now, they're not always able to offer sacrifices to animals and things like that, but they will find, man will find a way, sinful man will find a way to add to God's program. There's something, there's something within man that always wants to prove something to God. And as far as salvation is concerned, we can't do that. There's only one individual that had to prove something to God, and that was Jesus. He kept the law perfectly. And so when we trust in Jesus Christ, all the benefits of His obedient life are put to our account. So sometimes we explain that by saying, well, God sees us through Jesus or in Jesus. In Jesus is, is Paul's favorite way. In Christ Jesus is His favorite way of explaining these things. And, and let's, be, let's be honest, folks. You and I 
we have the same struggle today as they had in the first century. And if you truly understand this, this gospel of justification or righteousness by faith, you have to find ways, you have to ask God to help you to find ways to stand strong and to take on those who see it differently. And I know that this can be very uncomfortable. I'm not saying it must have been uncomfortable in Antioch, don't you think so? If you were pastoring that church, if you were an elder in that church or a leader in that church, you didn't enjoy the squabbles that were there. You didn't enjoy getting the cold shoulder. I mean, it wasn't a fun place to be because God wants us to be one. And He wants unity. And Jesus prayed for that in, his, in, his, uh, in John 17, His high priestly prayer. He prayed over and over and over that as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one, so we should be one with one another. Well, they get this welcome uh, when they come to Jerusalem. And then we have in verse 5 the negative. Then some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. I tried to wrap my imagination a little bit about around this and stand in the shoes of one of these Judaizers. And, and I see him having um, a hilltop home in Jerusalem. And he has a great view of the temple. And he's, he looks out on the temple and he sees the, sh the sun striking that temple. He just thinks, how perfect. We have all these texts in the Old Testament. And I have many of them in my notes. Don't have the time to share them with you. But if you're interested, I can give you those texts. Where it literally says that Jerusalem is like, is like the fortress on the hill. That all the nations and these non-Jews would flock to it and would be taught about the true God. So they had all of this Bible information that everything pointed to Christianity being Jewish and being centered in Jerusalem. And that the very way to worship and be right with God was given by God and spelt out by Moses. It's there in Leviticus, in Exodus, in those books, right? And this had gone on for hundreds and hundreds of years. But what many of them did not understand is that in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, all of these promises and ways of worship were fulfilled in Him. That very few understood. And for Paul to get it, who was the Pharisee of the Pharisees, for him to get it, the Lord Jesus had to appear to him. The Lord Jesus had to teach this man about what is the right way to be in God's favor and what is the wrong way. So, for a sincere Jew who really, really believes in the gifts that God has given the law, the temple, the worship, the ceremonial laws, the moral laws, and all, all of the other things, the food laws, all of these things that were given to them. It was a huge paradigm shift, a huge shift, which very, very few were able to do quickly to realize 
it meets its total fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's Paul out there with Barnabas preaching, teaching what I'll call a simple gospel message, probably talking about the life, certainly the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe something about his high priestly ministry, keeping it pretty simple, and people were responding all over the place. And these sincere Jews, Jewish Christians, probably felt very threatened. The only closest thing I've been to that is when I was in England, and, um, and as some of you know, who know my testimony, um, when I joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I never thought for a second it was a Jamaican church. Even though it was a Jamaican lady at my doorstep telling me about the church. Somehow in my mind, I just, maybe that was a God thing, I just didn't make the connection that this Jamaican lady was representing a Jamaican Seventh-day Adventist church. I just assumed, hey, I'm in England, they're all white. Probably didn't even think about it, I don't think, until I'm stood on the opposite side of the road, and God is calling me to visit that church. And I've made a promise to visit that church. And I'm going to try and keep that promise. Shouldn't we do that? Shouldn't we try and keep our promises, even if it's hard? And it was really hard. This was a hard one to keep. Because I stood there on the opposite side of the road, watching the people come flock in. Suddenly, for the first time, I realized it's all black. Now, it wasn't, but that's the way it looked. And you better make sure that Satan knows how to maximize and make a big deal of those things. Are those big deals? No. The color of your skin, can you decide the color of your skin? Can you decide your nationality? I mean, there's certain things we have no control over. And in the economy of God, they're not big deals. But man, sinful man, through the urging of Satan, makes them things that divide us. So that kind of bothered me, in the, and, and Satan was saying, yeah, let them have their little Calypso club. That's nothing for you, man. And the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you're a Christian now. Go over and just go in. So it was really hard. It was really, really hard. I mean, I wouldn't be telling you about it if it wasn't a, a traumatic thing for me. And as I, as I crossed that road with fear and trepidation, it was only until I sat down in the pew that God said, this is your spiritual home. And it was at that time about two-thirds Jamaican, primarily Jamaican, few Trinidadians. We had a white English pastor. We had about a third white membership. And, um, and it was really many of those Jamaicans that embraced me and that tried to make me feel part of that church family. Now, let me ask a question. When I visited that church, or let's say even more important, when I got baptized into that church, how do you think I would have felt if half of them cold-shouldered me and half of them embraced me? I mean, that would give you a very negative picture of, I mean, where is the good news in that? Where's the good news that we're a divided people? That there's no unity, there's no oneness? Well, it wasn't like that for me, praise God. 
I hope it's not been like that for you as you've, uh, whatever church you belong to, that you've hopefully been embraced by your church family. And it's very important that you find a church family. When I was converted, when I was born of the Spirit, I didn't know any Christians. And one of the first things that God did was put the desire in my heart, wasn't a man-made thing, it was a God thing, to find spiritual family, what the Bible calls the church, the way, the believers. Where are they? How do you know? Do you have to go shopping around for the next 10 years because a lot of churches out there? So God placed the desire in my heart. I prayed the prayer. I said, Lord, lead me to people that love Jesus and, and follow the Bible. And he had a Seventh-day Adventist on my doorstep, pronto. And then eventually, after months and months of studying through correspondence, I was ready to visit that Seventh-day Adventist church. And I desperately needed fellowship. You need to be with people who love Jesus. And not everyone in the church loves Jesus. I understand that. So it's not, it's not like you can just go to anyone, but you need to surround yourself with people that love Jesus, believe the Bible is the Word of God, and you need to spend time with those people, socialize with those people, be with those people. And very soon you'll realize that God has given you two families. Your natural physical family, which you may or may not have. I mean, it's great if you have that support system around you. And it's great if they don't oppose you becoming a Christian or a Seventh-day Adventist. But then you more importantly, need that spiritual family. I mean, aren't there a lot of questions that come in your head? Don't you need someone to talk with, to encourage you, to share with? And by the way, that's the most important ingredient. Maybe not the, I hesitate to say the most important, but one of the most important reasons why God has raised up this Anderson Church is for you to encourage one another. Many of us don't even know one another's names. Don't you think we can do a little bit better? Hi, Hugh. Put your hand up so everyone knows Hugh. See, if I do it this way, you'll never forget Hugh. And you, Hugh has someone sat to his right. Who's that, Hugh? You see how he, he almost forgot, so... You have to be careful when you do these things. You might, you might break a marriage up, not bring it together. So this is your wife who? Vivian. Vivian. And Vivian has someone on next to her. Who's that? That's Judy. Some of you do know Judy already. And Judy has someone next to her. That's Luke, who belongs to, not Judy, but Hugh. And, but you see how it really doesn't take a lot of effort for us to get to kind of know one another. And some, some of you, I've been here four and a half years, some of you I feel I know pretty well. And some of you are part of this church family I hardly know at all. And the reality is that we need to feel that when we come into this place or through the week, as we're part of this church family interacting with one another, that this is a safe place. This is a place where you can say, hey, I might, I might have these... Uh, 
eccentricities. Have you ever known an Englishman that's not eccentric? I might have these weird ways of doing things, but that family somehow, some way accepts me. And this idea of accepting is really the heart of justification by faith. If I, if I waxed eloquent for the next 15 minutes on justification by faith, most of you I would leave behind because you'd stumble over the language and, and maybe some of the ideas that somebody can actually stand in our place and somehow, because, and we certainly know that we're sinners, somehow we can be right with God. So, let's explain it differently, more in the flow of, of the book of Acts. Can you sit down and eat with people? Is it possible to do that without cold shouldering? What if the food's moving? <laughs> Can you still embrace them? I tell you something, I tell you something, these Gentiles, we're talking about a mixed multitude. We're talking about some of them being real rough and ready and coarse, probably stinking. But somehow, someway, they trust in Jesus. And somehow, someway, a little bit here, a little bit there, the Holy Spirit starts to mold them and shape them into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the business of the local church family, whether it be in Antioch, Jerusalem, or wherever, and culturally, can you imagine the differences? between a Pharisaical Jew who's always lived in Jerusalem and has hardly ever moved out of Jerusalem. His whole world, 724, is Judaism and worship and the Bible and, and memorizing the Old Testament and just drilling this stuff in. And then suddenly you're seeing these non-Jews, people that really, yeah, it's kind of interesting what these Jews believe. Well, it's really not, not, not really the big deal. The big deal is that you know Jesus and you get full of His Holy Spirit, and they're flocking into the church. So in England, while a few Jamaicans came into the white English church, it was kind of fun. It was the mission story coming alive. No longer was it somebody reading it from the front. They were there in your midst. But when they started coming in in droves, what you saw then was the white flight not just in England, here in North America, in Canada, and in different parts of the world. Because sometimes we find ourselves so culturally different that we just don't want to make the effort to embrace those fellow believers. Hopefully we do believe that they're believers, but hey, they may believe quite differently than you, and they may certainly practice their beliefs differently than you. If you travel the world, one of the first things you'll find when you visit Seventh-day Adventists throughout the world is they keep the Sabbath very differently. Is there any one place in the world where they keep the Sabbath perfectly? Is there a perfect way of keeping? Is there a perfect way of... Is there one way, one perfect way of worshiping God. Well, if you're in your little isolated Jerusalem, of course, it's our way or the highway. But when you travel and you see God working in the lives of people all over the world, you realize it, the reality is very 
very different. So what I want us to get from these first five verses of, of Acts 15, and we'll pick it up again next week, is it's okay to have diversity. It's okay to have variety within the church. As Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom will go into all the world. As he was speaking to Jewish people, the only thing they're thinking is, oh yeah, Jews, we have them all over the world. It's the only thing. That's the only thing they could get a hold of at that point in time. And it took, I mean, we're talking about 10, 12 years later after Cornelius, when we get to, to um, what's happening with the Gentiles flocking into the church. So, so it took decades for the early church to come to terms with accepting one another. And some of them probably never got there. And we have to realize that not everyone's going to catch it. And we don't have to say that they're not Christians because they don't catch it when we think, how can you not catch it? I caught it first day. And you know this thing on righteousness by faith, justification by faith, even though I never ever understood the language of Paul and, and what the Bible teaches on these things, I never felt that God had not accepted me. So, biblically, theoretically, theologically, I needed somebody to teach me that, probably. Right? Even Peter says some things that Paul teaches are tough to get a hold of. But experientially, Never for a second did I ever doubt that God had fully accepted me in Christ. And I knew for sure that the only thing that I had done was trust and have faith in Jesus. That I knew for sure. And God embraced me by pouring His Holy Spirit out on me. Once His Spirit is placed upon me, you want to get baptized, so that's what I did. And then when somebody is, is baptized of the Spirit and baptized of water, how dare any of us not accept and embrace and fellowship with those people? So that's the, the acid test. That's the acid test right there. If God has accepted them by pouring His Spirit on them, how can we do any less? And the disputes, well, we'll see next week, we'll see how the, the early church resolved or tried to resolve some of these disputes. We will have disputes, we will have disagreements, but at the end of the day, we've got to come together and show our oneness in the Lord Jesus Christ, because this is close to the heart of God. And if this Anderson Church family will take seriously what I'm saying and what I've been preaching for four and a half years, this church will be packed. But it's not going to be packed just because I preach a good sermon. It's going to be packed when we practice what God says in His Word. Love one another, embrace one another, fellowship with one another, eat with one another. Table fellowship, very important. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You for these uh, few minutes that we've spent together today. We thank You for people, I do, Lord, for people like Paul, who stood strong, even when Barnabas uh, made his mistakes and Peter, Peter made his mistakes, somehow, some way, Paul seemed to stand strong. So I thank you for this tremendous uh, understanding he had, Lord, 
of the good news of Jesus Christ and what Jesus achieved on the cross. And I thank you, Lord, that eventually the early church uh, went along with Paul and they, we had a loving church family. May we have that here in the Anderson Church. Uh, may we have it with our sister churches in Reading, in Red Bluff, Palisadro, wherever they may be. Make us just one loving family that you can bless and that you can use in these last days is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.